of the Lord. We are thrilled to have you today with us here at Victory Church. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory, and it's an honor to be with you this morning. We enjoyed a tremendous series put on by our pastors, lead pastors here, staff pastors, on the fruit of the Spirit called Higher Love. Pastor Jeremy did a phenomenal job last Sunday wrapping up that series on self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, next Sunday, I want to tell you that I've got a dear, dear friend, remarkable apostolic evangelist, traveled all over the world. He's led church planting networks, planted churches around the nations. Um, his name is Larry Tomzak. He's going to be with us and to kick off our new series that we're moving from the fruits of the Spirit on higher love over to the gifts of the Spirit. It's going to be called Higher Power. Everybody say Higher Power. So he's going to kick off that series, and I'll be in the pulpit the next seven weeks after that on this new series that I've been working on. So I'm very excited about that, glad that you're here today. Everyone is a special guest. We have some great churches in West Memphis, Marion. We're honored to have you. Forgive me, I've got a little peppermint in my mouth because my throat's a little scratchy this morning. <clears throat> and I picked that up about halfway through that first message, and I thought, man, if I'm going to make it through this second one, I'm going to have to dial it back a little bit because I, I had some preach on this morning if you were in the first service. Um, everybody's an honored guest. Thank you for being with us. Great churches in West Memphis and Marion. We're honored that you'd be with us today. I have special guests this morning on the front row. My handsome son, Drew, and his lovely, beautiful, gorgeous, Marion up son, wife, <laughs> or, or, or fiance, going to be wife, Holly. And so give them a hand this morning. Abby is on her way. She's coming in this afternoon. So we are thrilled that you're with us this morning. If you have your message notes today, the bulletin looks kind of like uh, some youth culture graffiti on the side of a concrete wall, revolution. And that's because I have a message today that I want to talk about for a few moments called The Day the Revolution Began. And before I jump into that, I have a, a flyover picture that I want to show you of our property. This was just taken this week. That's our 30 acres. The, the, the road that's running through the top quadrant there is College Boulevard. It used to be called Airport Road. A little small lane there is now Angel's Way, which is where we are. You've got Pleasant Plains on the left, Bayou Vista subdivision below, Pleasant Woods over to the right. The little small area there with the uh, parking lot is our, our neighbor, Angel's Way Baptist Church. Our 30 acres is there. They're pulling dirt up from what will be a detention pond on the eastern side of the property. And you can see the lane that it's going. They're moving the dirt up from there up to a pad where they're building up two feet so that when you're riding a down College Boulevard, it won't look like it's down in a hole. So we're building up about a two-foot pad to build the new church on. Uh, Buddy Warner, who, who flies little small engine planes as a hobby, was out flying this week, and he took this picture, and he sent it to me. And he said, I thought you might like to have this. And so I had Nate get it and put it on a slide for us this morning because I'd just like to say to everybody who said this would never happen, look at there. What do you think about that now? Um, we're excited. It's going to be an amazing year. We, we are here to celebrate today, not the building of bricks and mortar, but we're here celebrating the building of the temple of God, which is people. Jesus himself is the permanent temple of God. God resides in Jesus Christ. And now because Jesus died for us, was buried for us, was raised to life for us, and now sits beside the Father, 
Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the Bible says he is there ever living to make intercession for us. He is pleading for us, another verse says. Because of that this morning, we are celebrating what God is building in a people. The, the focus at Victory has never been about stones and steel or about bricks and mortar. It's about building people. And we're thankful for a team here that we believe God is going to help us now with some new facilities, some better tools in our hands to actually be able to join together and further equip families and the next generation to be able to reap the delta for the kingdom of God. So put your hands together and let's give the Lord praise. I really hadn't planned to share this because it's Easter and we have several guests today and I don't ever want to make it about money when guests are here, but I just want to thank you for your generosity last Sunday. I don't have an exact total, but I know that we crossed the $30,000 mark in our miracle offering last Sunday, so put your hands together and give the Lord praise for that. Amen. So that will go a long way in our outreaches this year and buying some appliances for our kitchen. Everything uh, we value engineered the building to keep it under our budget so that we could uh, be able to come out on the other side of this thing. And the, everything was finished completely, totally, except for the kitchen. And so now we've got something to be able to work toward that. A couple of folks in the church, one of the uh, business owners, a contractor, stepped forward and he said, hey, I've got some connections. Those, those high-dollar, high-name appliances you want, I can get them for you. So I think we'll be able to get that at cost. So we're excited at what the Lord's doing for us. Put your hands together. Let's give God praise. Amen. All right. This morning we're going to be receiving the Lord's table at the end of the service today. A little bit different than we normally do. This is Easter, celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We'll be taking the Lord's communion this morning, and it's open to everyone. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior today, you do not have to be a member, a formal member of Victory Church. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he was a carpenter who built a table that is big enough for the whole world. He invites everybody to come and sit at the table and enjoy the fellowship with the Father. This morning, the title of the message is called The Day the Revolution Began. Say that with me. The Day the Revolution Began. I want to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I have eight verses here. And there will appear in these verses some emboldened words about three times. And when we come on those, I'd like for you to speak up and vocalize those words. Say them with me as we come to them. Okay, here we go. Apostle Paul writes and he says, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. I love the song we just sang. I'll stand with arms high, heart abandoned, in awe of the one who gave it all. Hallelujah. You stand firm in it. Verse 2. It is this good news that saves you. If you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Verse 3. I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. Read it, here we go. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Now, interestingly enough, what are the scriptures Paul is talking about? Because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. He's writing the letter right now to the Corinthians that will become part of the New Testament scriptures. So when he says, just as the scriptures said, he's talking about all of the Old Covenant, the law, the Psalms, the prophets. All of those times throughout the Old Testament where just a little glimpse of one who was coming, a rock that followed them in the wilderness, 
and gushed forth water when they were thirsty. A pillar of fire by night that protected them and heated them and guided them. A pillar of, a pillar of cloud by day that air conditioned them as they traveled through the heated desert. The lamb that was caught in the thicket in Genesis 22 by Abraham that was a picture of Christ who would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Jehovah Jireh revealed himself there as the Lord who sees beforehand and provides every need that you have. Somebody say amen. The scriptures that we talk about, and I could multiply and go on and on and on and on, all the symbols, all the signs, all the prophetic types that point to the Messiah who is yet to come, Paul says all of that was fulfilled in this man Jesus Christ who died for us, was buried for us, was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Verse 5, he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. These are all eyewitness accounts. They're giving testimony. They are attesting to the fact that this Savior who was crucified on a cruel Roman cross was in the ground and on the third day rose again from the dead and was seen by all of these. It's amazing to me that historians who give credit to writers like Homer with the Iliad and the Odyssey, of which we know of two extant copies of those books on the planet. And yet sometimes those same historians would call into question the veracity of the New Testament when we literally have 10,000 pieces and fragments and, and copies of whole books and passages, Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the late 1940s. All of these things archaeologically combined to give us a witness of the Word of God that is true, the Word of God that is final, the Word of God that has all authority. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. One thing I want to speak to you today, I want you to grasp this. Look at the screen. I want you to read this out loud with me, please. Here we go. The events between one Passover Friday and Sunday morning became the most powerful, life-changing, history-making three days of all time. It is the hinge point of history. It provides redemption for our past, purpose for our present, and hope for our future because Jesus is the center of everything. Put your hands together and give him praise. Hallelujah. It was a group of, of 12 ordinary guys, a motley crew. I, I don't want to be offensive in any kind of way, but these were Hebrew rednecks. They were fishermen and they were farmers. Unschooled ordinary men who hung out with Jesus for three and a half years. These were salty fishermen that probably told off-color jokes sitting around the fire. But in three and a half years hanging out with Jesus, something of the holiness of God rubbed off on them so that when the time came, they were called before judges and juries and before the council of the Sanhedrin with their life on the line. The Bible says these guys that were educated who were calling them to question about this name Jesus that they were preaching in the name of, Peter stood up and he said, this same Jesus whom you crucified has raised this man and caused him to walk and leap and to give God praise. The, the miracle in Acts 3 with the gentleman at the gate beautiful. 
Acts 4, it says when they were before the council, the, the Sanhedrin was amazed that these men were unschooled, ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. How many of you know, no matter what your station in life, your level of education, the balance in your checkbook, the square footage of your house, how many cars you have, all of that, none of that stuff matters. Everything that the world puts credence into, everything that the world marks you and measures you by, God is not interested in any of it and he can take your ordinary life, my everyday, mundane, jacked up life and he can take my mess and he can transform it into a message and he can empower me to influence a whole generation. Come on somebody, say amen, hallelujah. I believe that with all of my heart. Twelve ordinary guys hung out and in the middle of that community, God took those guys and they turned the world upside down. You know what? We've got some life groups that you can be a part of. That's my commercial for life groups, by the way. Imagine what it would be like if we would just devote some time to building our band of brothers or our band of sisters or maybe some other couples or folks that are kind of in the same life stage that you're in or maybe somebody that's a little bit older and somebody's a little bit younger, someone who can mentor you and somebody that you can encourage as well. Hang out with them and open your heart. Even as wonderful as this celebration service is, you're not really going to get close to anybody by sitting in chairs and rows together and fellowshipping the back of somebody else's head. But it's when you can sit together in community and eyeball to eyeball, open your heart and say, you know what, I don't understand this. I'm struggling in this area. Would you, would you please pray for me? Somebody else that will hold you accountable and will challenge you to reach out in faith and take hold of the good things of God and trust in the promises of God. Somebody else that will encourage you to forsake sin and make choices that, that God will come alongside you and strengthen you in the struggle that you face. Can I have an amen in the room this morning? Small groups with a big vision. The kingdom of God is always about thinking big and starting small. Jump online, check it out. You've got some opportunities there with a lot of different kinds of groups that meet in different places. You can have a life that touches the world and changes the world. It's not just on a real quick Sunday morning service. Get with somebody and begin to build some community. God will radically transform your life if you'll do that. Does anybody believe what I'm saying? Amen. All right. Jumping in this morning. The foundation of my education besides a, a degree in business administration, is also two degrees in history. Bachelor's degree in history and a master's in global history. And one of the things that I learned through all of that study in world civilizations, in, in European medieval history, in history of the Christian church, in comparative religions, in the, the establishment of the new nation in America and colonialism, colonial period, American Civil War, contemporary times, all of these things, all of these various classes, all of these approaches, there was one thing that really stuck out to me, and they defined history as change over time. Say that with me, change over time. History is the record of change over time. How many of you know nothing is staying the same? Everything is changing. I, I think about the John Mayer song that says, Stop This Train. It's a uh, guy who is seeing his father age and he's, he's facing the reality that in this life that we all just sort of are a, in a, a blur in a moment, just kind of a breath that fades away, sort of a, a poetic reminder of the way it's stated in the book of Job, that it, the life is just a vapor. We're here and then we're gone. And, and to recognize that we live life with purpose and recognize that every day in my life something changes, nothing is staying the same. 
And if I'm going to grow through what I'm going through, I have to have the right perspective. A lot of folks are going through all kinds of stuff. People tell me all the time, Pastor, please pray for me. I, you just you don't even know what I'm going through. And I want to go, yeah, are you growing through what you're going through? That'll preach the rest of the day. Somebody say amen. History has changed over time. And when we look at the record of history, there is a slow, gradual transformation which is evolutionary change. Now, don't be afraid of that word. Don't anybody go out of here today and say, that pastor down there at that church at the mall believes in biological Darwinism. He believes we were all monkeys and became humans. No, 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 no. That's not what I said. But don't be so narrow thinking that you're afraid of the simple general meaning of the word evolve because we're evolving. We're changing. We're, we are, as a matter of fact, as I grow in my relationship with God, there's an evolution of change that is taking place in my life because God is making me like Jesus. That's called sanctification. You're fine with that word because it's a Bible church word. But evolution in history is not just this idea of jumping from one species to the other, but it's this idea of the record of history and change over time. The Hebrew nation evolved. It changed. Religion became brittle because it became without presence. And it was a hardened set of fast rules. God delivered the nation of Israel by the blood, the water, and the spirit out of Egypt as they applied the blood of the doorpost, the, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their, their homes. Well, the, 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 the celebration of crucifixion always coincides with the Jewish feast of Passover because Jesus became the fulfillment, becoming the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Somebody say amen. Israel had experienced kind of an evolving into what began as 10 laws on Mount Sinai when God breathed the fire out of his mouth and burned it into stone and Moses descended the side of the mountain and brought the two tablets of the law, those that deal with relationships to the Father, those that deal with relationships to others, mom and dad, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no envying. All those, those big ten commandments, not suggestions, ten commandments. Those ten developed into 613 laws that really became about a kind of set of legalism where folk began to think that they could earn the favor of God. And Jesus comes in in a radical kind of way and he comes in to bring change, not that is evolutionary change over a long period of time, but Jesus comes in as a revolutionary. Everybody say a revolutionary. If you would put that back up, I want you to see it. The graphic for our, our message. This is really kind of cool because when you look at revolution, which is radical overturning, it is an abrupt change that takes place. The revolution that began on the day Jesus was crucified was a revolution of love. And so often... When a revolution takes place by the strength of the skill of man, it will take place with military might or it will take place, place with a bloody coup. Somebody is deposed as a leader and somebody else is put in place if they have the military backing to do it. But the revolution of the kingdom of God is a revolution of love. It's an upside down backwards kind of revolution. and God's going to sneak it in on us on what was called Good Friday, although the events of that day had, didn't appear like they were going to be good at all. We want to talk about that this morning. The, the, the first point that I want to bring to you quickly is called the scandal of the cross. Everybody say scandal. Greek word skandalon literally 
is the mechanism on the mousetrap that you dab the peanut butter on? Or you sort of ball up the little piece of sliced cheese, you know, that you pull the plastic off and you kind of make it in a little ball and you stick it down into those little teeth that are there. That little mechanism that when the mouse is baited with the cheese or the peanut butter or the pecan or whatever you do to catch the mice, that if he continues to touch that thing, he will trigger the scandalon. And guess what? If he triggers the scandalon, that mouse won't just be offended. He's going to be dead. Dead. And the enemy baits us. He baits us in order to offend us because if he can offend us, and, uh, and we stay offended, then we can stay out of the ball game. It's sort of like the umpire who says, hit the showers, because you've been acting like you shouldn't act out on the baseball field of life. And so you get offended, and you're thrown out. You're, de- you're uh, e- ejected from the game. I'm sitting here going through rejected, dejected, and then I'm in my mind, I'm going, no, 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 ejected. Okay, I had to get it all right there. The scandal of the cross. So the scandalon is that little trigger mechanism that will trap you in a place of offense or hurt. And the cross has a trigger mechanism. It has, a, it has scandal in it that we, 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 don't, we don't like it because we're thinking of God the mighty warrior. We're thinking of Jesus the military commander. And yes, he becomes that. But what is veiled behind all of this suffering, what is, what is veiled behind that is the glory of a victory that God wins over sin and over Satan but it's veiled underneath all the suffering. And we don't see that all on Good Friday when Jesus is hanging on the cross between two thugs. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Everybody say reputation. Jesus wasn't concerned about what anybody else thought. He was concerned about what the Father thought. He lived to please God. And because of that, he grew in wisdom and stature and the favor of God and man is what the, Spirit, the Scripture says. It says, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, willingly laid down everything that he had and enjoyed in heaven with the Father and came to earth and literally from the bottom up, not as a top-down commander, but as a bottom-up taking on the form of a slave, the humility of a slave. And the Bible says he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Churches all over the world will have some kind of depiction of the cross of Jesus Christ if not all the time, regularly, certainly on specific days where we're wanting to emphasize the importance. Somebody says, why don't you have one out all the time? And I don't because I think it becomes so familiar that we don't even think about it. So we we bring it out and we want to remind you because everybody has one dangling from their ears and on their fingers and around their neck. And I want you to think about the scandal of the cross because it would be the same thing to wear a cross would be if you were wearing a little gold lethal injection syringe. To wear a cross is the same thing if you were had a little electric chair hanging on a on on as a pendant around your neck. Or let's say you had a couple of little gas chambers in uh, sterling silver that were hanging from your ears, ladies. Or maybe gentlemen who wear earrings, whatever. 
I didn't mean that in a bad way. Whatever. Okay, let me go on. That's a rabbit I'm not going to chase down that trail. <laughs> the death, the criminal death of a cross. It literally is a symbol of execution. Crosses dotted the whole basin around the Mediterranean Sea for a protracted multi-century period as the Roman Empire began to, to grind its wheels of injustice and colonialism and empire. A bloodthirsty set of Caesars that were attempting to take over nations and languages and people groups and tribes. And everyone who rebelled against the, the, the slow-moving grind of the injustice of the Roman Empire would find themselves hanging on a cruel Roman cross, hanging suspended between heaven and earth with the birds of the air pecking their flesh from them. Crucifixion literally is one of the most cruel, inhumane forms of execution that has ever been in the history of man. And Jesus came during the period where this was the prevalent form of execution. The, the scandalon, what, what offends us about the cross is that we're looking for a Messiah who will save us, but yet we see him in a moment of what looks like complete, utter defeat. But don't be fooled for a moment because God has the ability to take strength and bring it out of weakness. God can take the weakness in your life if you will put your dependency and your trust upon him and he will show up and complete what you could never do in your own strength. The Apostle Paul says, when I am weak, he is strong. In my weakness, his strength is made perfect. And so what I want you to see is the fact that there is a Savior, a Messiah, who's hanging on a cross what looks like utter failure and complete defeat. God literally masks it behind that because it is victory. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2 that if the princes of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was kind of like almost a cosmic gotcha where God says, ha, 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 I tricked you into that, devil. Because he thought he had Jesus. He thought, I've taken him down. It's over with. There's no more voice. There's no prophetic word of God. There's nothing that can change or transform the lives of humans. Satan has got him. He's in the ground. He's dead. But little does he know that the story hasn't ended and, and only God gets the final word. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. That story begins in the frailty of a manger in Bethlehem with a little teenage girl, 14, 15 years old, who gets pregnant out of wedlock. I understand immaculate conception, but can you believe, can you imagine what it was like going home telling her daddy, Father, an angel visited me, and he's going, yeah, right. What was the angel's name? How many of you hear what I'm saying? <laughs> Help us, Lord. The vulnerability of a human baby all the other species come out of the womb. Uh, I, I was watching a Nat National Geographic or maybe a Discovery Channel and it was just talking about the, the birthing of various species and a little calf is born and within, within a, maybe a matter of an hour or so, the calf is already up on its little wobbly legs and it's starting to walk. Our, our species is the weakest. It takes the longest for us to mature one of our little ones, one of our babies, Get them 21 years old before we recognize adulthood. And Lord knows just because they're 21 doesn't mean they're mature. Somebody say amen. amen. Now don't you think you're all that just because you're 50 because you can be immature in 50. <laughs> all the young people said amen. 
See, I just want you to know I'm an equal opportunity offender. I'll put the scandal on out there for everybody. We want to keep it real at Victory. Somebody asked me to describe Victory Church recently, and I said, real, real people, real God, real world. Real people, folk that are struggling, folk that are not perfect, serving the God who is real, a real, true, powerful, awesome, loving, merciful, amazing God. And they're doing it in the nasty, nitty-gritty of very true, real-world experiences. So real people, real God, real world. Look at your neighbor and say, keep it real. Jesus showed up and he's not pandering to the rich and the powerful. He's not trying to impress the Roman senators. He's not trying to impress the religious leaders or the Sanhedrin. He's basically standing in the middle between two warring parties and he's aggravating the Pharisees and he's making angry the Sadducees. Like the, king, like, like the kingdom of God that he is in representation, we ought to be standing between the two diverse political parties of this day and prophetically calling both of them up higher instead of squaring off on either side of the room and demonizing the people on the other side. Come on, help me this morning. Uh, I'm preaching real good. Don't shout me down now. Jesus was drawn to the weak and the disenfranchised and the worn out and the down and out, the helpless and the hopeless and the hapless. He was, he was ministering to the diseased and the distressed and the disturbed and the discontented. He, he, he loved the broken and the bruised and he healed the blind and he, he gave to the beggar to help him or her out. He preached in such a way that the common ordinary fishermen and the farmers could understand him and he used illustrations that the common man could grasp. He wasn't tied up in heavy theology and Greek and Hebrew words. Nothing wrong with that. I appreciate that. I study that. But don't ever get away from the simplicity of the gospel. That's what Paul was saying. If you will hear what I've passed on to you that you have received, this good news will save you if you continue to believe what you first heard. Somebody say amen. Jesus loved the holy handmaids, but he also loved the unholy prostitutes. Don't be quiet on me right now. Jesus died for the sin afflicted and the sex addicted. Whatever your flavor is this morning, how, whatever the brokenness is in your life that you're trying to fill with a chemical or with shopping or with working or with an illicit sexual relationship, all of it is pure sin and nothing will ever satisfy that gaping hole that's on the inside of you until you learn to reach out and fill it, put your trust in God and let God fill that hole in your life. Jesus experienced everything that you experienced. He grew up. He wasn't just a baby and then all of a sudden the commander of the heavenly army. He was one and then he was two. He went through his terrible twos just like ours do. I didn't know if I was ever going to get out of the terrible twos when Drew was terrible too. I'm not going to tell on you, son. Great stories. He's an amazing, amazing young man. Great leader. But everybody struggles. We all struggle. We go through circumstances that we just are not prepared for. Just don't know how to handle it. And thank God Jesus experienced every bit of that. The Bible says we don't have a high priest who is not easily touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He has sympatheo is the Greek word. We get our English word sympathy from it. He has compassion for my struggle that I'm in in the middle of right now. Because he's been right where I am. He's felt what you feel. He's sensed the temptation that you're going through. And the Bible says he was in all points tempted like you are, but yet without sin. And because of that, 
The Bible says in the next verse, it's, it's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace whereby we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us when we're in a time of need. If you believe that, say amen. Passion week began. Jesus didn't do anything the way that all the other religious leaders did it. He touched people that everybody said were untouchable. The man with the leprous hand, stretch it out. Woman with the issue of blood, you don't touch women on their period. She's supposed to be outside the camp. She's rejected from society, but yet she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. Jesus is in the middle of a throng, and he says, who touched me? Can you imagine Peter going, what? What do you mean who touched? The people are thronging you, and you go, who touched me? Jesus said, no, no, I felt power, virtue. I felt something go out of me. The, a, a withdrawal was made. Faith grabbed a hold of the, the hem of my garment and somebody just got healed. And he says it and he turns around and this little, this little fledgling little Hebrew woman comes forward and says it was me under affliction for 12 years and yet by faith she reached out and the scripture says Jesus looked at her and he says, daughter, go because your faith has made you well. How many are thankful for faith in God? Passion Week begins, and last Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, not on a, a muscled-up stallion, the fastest of Caesar's herd or stall. No, he rides into town on a donkey. Y'all, that's laughable. A little waddling, trot, just kind of a little trottling fast little donkey comes into Jerusalem, which is a symbol of peace. It's a rejection of an empire mentality that we're going to roll over everybody else and take over by our military might or by our economic strength. He's saying, no, guys, we're going to do this thing called the kingdom in an upside-down way, and what you thought you were going to get is not what I am. See, Israel wanted a political leader that would save them from Caesar and overturn the Roman Empire, and Jesus didn't do that, so they were offended. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter had just denied. Judas shows up with the armed guard and he goes and kisses with the kiss of betrayal on Jesus' cheek. And they make an attempt to arrest Jesus and take him into captivity. And Peter unsheathes the sword and whacks off the ear of the high priest. I'm going to tell you, I think Peter missed. I think he was trying to come right down I think he was trying to crack open the brains of that servant of the high priest and he, thank God he just hit the ear because Jesus said, put your sword down. We're not going to take up swords and defend ourselves with natural strength. And Jesus picked up the ear laying on the ground. He put it on the side of Malchus' head, the servant of the high priest, and he healed him on the spot. Too often we rise up in our own strength ready to just do something in our own power. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is not going to be taken that way. It's a time of putting down the sword and healing the ears of those who've been wounded. But the cross still has a scandal. The cross still has an offense. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes and he says, the preaching of the cross is an offense to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks because the Jews are looking for the strength of a political savior, a Messiah, that'll come and take over. And the Jews are looking for Sophia, for wisdom, for philosophy, for the love of ideology and thinking. But you know something? Jesus knew what he was doing. He was fulfilling 
the Deuteronomic pronouncement that said, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Paul picked that up in Galatians and he said, Christ has rescued us from the curse of the law because he became the curse for us. He hung on the tree and the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. He took my place. What was on my account as a debit, an account that was filled, it was, it was overflowing and an NSF filled with sin and Jesus rolls that over to his account and he credits my account with his righteousness. He takes my sin, it's a legal accounting transaction. His righteousness was imputed to me, it was given to me. I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it, you can't. Nobody in the room is good enough but Jesus himself is good enough. Somebody say Amen. You know, I want to tell you this. Jesus didn't die to rescue humanity from his angry heavenly father. God's not mad at you this morning, saints. We've had so much of that radical, out of whack, out of balance theology of constant hellfire and brimstone in the Bible Belt South that most folk are living their lives kind of looking around their shoulder to see if God's going to watch what they're doing because they think God is angry and he's aggravated and he's... He's just vengeful and he's ready like Zeus on some Roman mountain from Olympus ready to just send a lightning bolt down and literally destroy your life. I want to tell you who God is. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ on the cross reconciling the world to himself. God loved you so much. Jesus didn't come to rescue you from an angry heavenly father. Jesus came to show you God the Father who is your Savior. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. He died to show us God the Savior. The Jewish mind was looking for a political Savior, a military commander, an economic advisor. Honestly, I don't want to offend you by saying this, but this is so clear. Israel was looking for a commander that would make Israel great again. It's real quiet in here this morning. Come on now, I love you, all you white evangelicals that are sitting here. You didn't have any trouble when I got up during the Obama administration and said, don't put your trust in a man. It isn't who's living in the White House at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that our hope is in. So if you get offended that I get up and tell you the same thing now that Trump's in there, something's wrong with your thinking. My hope is not built on the resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. My hope is built on the one who's sitting on the throne above who's living in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The Israelite leaders were looking for somebody to make Israel great again. So raise them up out from underneath the subjugation of the Roman Empire and let the kingdom of Israel be like it was under David and under Solomon. Make Israel great again. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not throwing off on Trump no more than I ever threw off on Obama. I, I, I don't like policies of either one of them. My trust is not in the flesh of man. My trust is in God. He is our only Savior. Come on, somebody. Help me a little bit this morning. The instruments of the passion. What is scandalous is that Jesus didn't bring tanks and swords or nuclear weapons, a button that's big that works, bigger than yours. 
God help us from that kind of not disgusting attitude. Jesus came and the instruments of his passion were a scourge and a crown of thorns and nails and a wooden cross and a cock that crowed three times while Peter denied Jesus and a, and a kiss that betrayed him by one of his own disciples, Judas. The meaning of the cross is in complete stark opposition to the world's ways of power. The idea of a weak, crucified Messiah who didn't dethrone Caesar was scandalous to the religious leaders of the day and they were the voice of power over the Jewish people. The first point is the biggest one and it's the hardest one to get over. Hang with me now because it gets glorious. We'll sail through these. The second point is the glory of the tomb. I've been scandalized by the cross. I have to bow my knee at a wooden symbol of execution and kiss the cross and get a mouthful of splinters and let the cross do the work of death to my own will, to myself, where I can say, God, not my will, but yours be done. I have to bow my knee. It, there's level ground at the cross. Nobody has a better chance. Nobody is more favored than the other. Every one of us has to come through the offense of that cross and we come through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ onto the other side. This, these amazing bookends of three days of the crucifixion on Good Friday, the burial, the, the quietness, the silence of Holy Saturday. God, where are you in my life? But on the third day, something dramatically changed. We've had the bloody spectacle of Good Friday. I remember sitting in the theater when Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ came out. Dawn and I were sitting at the Paradiso at Poplar and Mendenhall. We were watching The Passion of the Christ. We'd gone to see it one afternoon. And we sat there in a theater where there weren't very many people and we were on the third row back. And I remember sitting next to her and I heard her sobbing. And tears are rolling down my cheeks and I'm seeing the relentless beating that just went on and on and on. And then the cross itself, just the bloody visceral. I mean, it's just it's such a tangible demonstration of everything that our Savior went through for us. The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. And I sat there in tears and Dawn was by herself. There probably weren't a half dozen people in the theater in that afternoon and she was crying and she said, my God, it's enough, stop. Because it was just relentless. And I think about the bloody spectacle of Good Friday. The appearance of Good Friday wasn't good at all. And then he goes into the grave. Hope looks like it's dead. There is... There's the, not a possibility any longer of what we were convinced that, that this was the one that God had sent. This, this sent one from God, this anointed one, this Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Messiah, Christ the anointed one, the one that we thought for sure was the one who would deliver us. He's dead and he's in the ground and it's sealed with a stone that takes multiple men to move. And it's guarded by the Roman soldiers. And it's sealed with wax by the signet of, of Caesar's ring. In the middle of that silence of Holy Saturday, this is such a personal, it's tangible. I can feel this. Because the last 18 months of my life have been a good Friday. It's been wrestling with grief that I thought I was drowning in. It's like, it's like you're in a swimming pool and you can't swim 
and, and the water is just right up, up under your nose and the grief that I've wrestled down and the questions that I've asked God, where were you? Why, why? I'm, 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 I'm scandalized. I'm, in, I'm caught in the trap. I'm offended. I, I can't even say how I feel because it would offend you if I used the words. It's so raw. Because I... I stood in my backyard and raised my fist and said, damn you, Dawn, for doing this to me. And I've wrestled through that grief. And my life has been a holy Saturday where there's silence. God, where are you? What are you doing in my life? And until the last few months, the last two or three months, it's like, before the sun comes up, there begins to be a little bit of light. And all of a sudden, what I thought I was going to drown from, I start to get the ability to breathe a little bit because I feel like I've been holding my breath for a year and a half. It, Drew and Holly and I were sitting around last night and we were talking about the difference between the first Christmas after Dawn died and this one we had this last year and how things were different. And I want to tell you, if you're grieving from the loss of a loved one right now, Put your trust in the Lord and just give it some time. It takes time. There's not a fix. There's not an elixir. There's not a medication. There's not a drink. There's not, first of all, there's not enough alcohol to, to get you out of it. It'll just only make it worse. And I felt like I started to breathe and I saw the light and all of a sudden something has begun to dawn. <laughs> Interesting choice of words. <laughs> and... I said, God, what are you doing in my life? And it's almost like I turned around and I've realized that he's, he's dug a well of compassion in me that I didn't even know I had the capacity to have. And I've started loving people in a way like I've never loved them before and stop and listen and hurt with them and grieve with them. And rejoice when they rejoice and care for them and let the compassion of God come up out of my heart. And I, it's like I've been going, okay, God, I see what you're doing here. I don't like it a bit, but I see what you're doing here. I don't understand it. I don't know why, but I see what you're doing. And so if, you, if you're in the middle of a good Friday and everything has fallen apart in failure in your life, or if you're in the middle of a holy Saturday and it's nothing but the silence of God, I have learned this. Just because God is silent doesn't mean that he's absent. Because something is working. Something is working behind the scenes. Jesus descended into hell and for that period between Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning he basically took the keys of death and Hades out of the jailer's hand and he looked the Bible says he preached to the souls in prison those were all of those faithful saints of the old covenant who looked forward in faith trusting in a Messiah who was yet to come and he went down there the Bible says he preached the good news the gospel to them and then when he came up out of the grave, he led captivity captive and he relocated paradise, took them to heaven. And those who he rejected, those that rejected him, he slammed the door for an eternal destruction. He led those who faithfully believed out of captivity. And on the third day, Look at your neighbor and say, the third day. Look at, look at somebody else and say, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. 
God will take the mess and the jacked up brokenness of your Good Friday, whatever's happening in your life where it looks like complete and total failure. He will disguise that and mask victory behind that that you don't even have the ability or the faith to see yet. He'll, he'll be ab- he will be with you in his presence, not absent, though he may be silent for a while to let you cry out to him and let you r- once more find who the source of your life is when you've got to dig down deeper and like, like the, the roots of the tree that go down way deep when there's no leaves, there's no fruit and like there is in spring and summer. But in the winter, it goes way down deep and the taproot will touch uh, some water that's way down deep in the ground. So God's been digging a well way down on the inside of my heart. But I'm thankful that on the third day, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all the other names. God can take the death that's in your life and he can bring life out of that death. There's a vacancy sign over an empty tomb in Jerusalem this morning. I've been there. I've been to the place where they say this is potentially where Jesus could have been buried. It's in the right location. You know, none of that is for certain because we didn't have somebody snapping the picture on their iPhone back then, okay? <laughs> Romans 1, 4 says that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus took every accusation of the law against you. It was nailed to the cross. He buried it in the grave. And bless God, when he got up, he rose without your sin. It is buried in, the, in, a, in a place of forgetfulness. Come on, God's forgotten about it. <laughs> Last point, and I'm finished. Because of the scandal of the cross, because three days later we experienced the glory of the empty tomb, we can know the promise of the new creation. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's coming a time, a future, where we have a new heaven and a new earth and every knee will bow. Every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what that says to me is that right now in the middle of your failure that is not fatal and your failure that is not final, God has hope for you even if you look hopeless. Come on, do you believe what I just said this morning? Say, God has hope for me. Say it, come on, put your hands together. I'm gonna invite the band, if you would please, go ahead and come to the platform as we close this service. Listen to Romans 8, verse 32, verse 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Come on, do you know who you are this morning sitting here in this room celebrating the resurrection of Jesus? You're a son of God, a daughter of God, child of God. Verse 32, since he did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? What, that, the obvious, I mean, it's like a rhetorical question that doesn't even require an answer. If God loved you so much that he would give the most precious thing for you, why do you think he's going to withhold anything else that you need to, to, to live this life and carry out your mission and your purpose the way God has called you? He's already given you the best he had. Don't you think he's going to take care of everything else? Come on, somebody. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? Everybody say, no one. For Christ Jesus died for us. That's the scandal of the cross. He was raised to life for us. That's the glory of the tomb. 
And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. That's the promise of the new creation. God's busy right now. Jesus the Son, God the Son is sitting beside the Father and the Bible says He is interceding for you. He is praying for you. You know, I don't mind it when people come to me and say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm honored. But let me tell you something. You've already got the best one in the universe praying for you and His name is Jesus. He's praying for you right now. Come on, somebody. Are you hearing that? Can anything separate us from God's love? Let me just jettison ahead here real quickly. Verse 38. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everybody say nothing. All right, here I am. I know you probably can't see it. Let me, let me enlarge that. Can, you, can everybody see so what? See that right there? It says so what? That, that's, that's at the bottom of every message that I preach. So what? So what? So what's the big deal? What, what's all of this about? So what? I want you to see this morning... You don't have to understand music theory or the intricacies of how a musical instrument is played or made or how the sound it produces to enjoy good music. Your ears hear it and you appreciate it. You love it. It moves you. You don't have to understand Greek words and Hebrew theology and all of the technicalities of atonement to just know these simple things. Christ died for you. He was raised for you. And now He's seated by the Father pleading for you. Do you hear that? Because of that, your failure is not fatal and it's not final. Your life might be in a Good Friday period, but hang on, help me say it. What's happening? Sunday is coming. Everybody say it one more time. Sunday is coming. The events between one Passover Friday and Sunday morning became the most powerful, life-changing, history-making three days of all time. It is the hinge point of history. It provides redemption for our past, purpose for our present, and hope for our future because Jesus is the center of everything. If you believe that, say amen. I, this morning, want to ask you, as we get ready to receive the Lord's table, to close this service, to sing a song, an anthem of declaration, what we believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit that He's given us new life. Before we sing that this morning, I want to give anybody in this room an opportunity who has never crossed the line of faith. Your life is in the middle of a Good Friday. It looks like complete, utter failure and brokenness. Or you know what? Maybe everything is just great, but yet on the inside, you're just knowing, eh, something isn't right. Something's moving me. Something's drawing me. This, that something is a person, and His name is the Holy Spirit. He's tapping your shoulder right now, reaching out to you. And everything that we've taken time to sing about and to preach about and to talk about this morning is for this very moment right now, for you to have the opportunity to reach out and take hold of what Jesus died for 2,000 years ago. Jesus was a carpenter who built a table and he built the table big enough for the whole world. And he says, there's a seat for you here at the table of grace. 
You don't buy a ticket. You don't work your way into it. It's a free gift. I'm inviting you. So this morning, God is, God is throwing a great big party and a celebration, and the invitation has gone out right now. The Holy Spirit is walking down these aisles. He's tapping you on the shoulder. He's drawing your heart. And if you've never crossed that line of faith, this is your opportunity right now. Very simply, not to come to God and say, okay, you know what, let me get out my act together and I'll be back. Or Lord, look at everything that I've done right. Because no matter all that we've done right, it's never enough if we're going to try to earn it. There's only one who was perfect and his name is Jesus. He ran the race perfectly without sin. And he's offering his place, his winning trophy to us, the trophy of eternal life. Jesus stretched out his arms and he breathed his last breath and he died. <sighs> he said, it is finished. The book of Genesis, God breathed into man natural life. But on Good Friday when Jesus died, he exhaled his spirit. And in that moment, God gave you the opportunity to inhale eternal life. <sighs> to take it in and to live forever. Every head bowed, please, if you would, eyes closed.